So we went to the wake. We went to the, that was our first date. Yeah, yeah. She went with me. Hey, hey, that's how you find out. She's real. You go with me, my family. You love me. Go that would have bothered me. Today it doesn't bother me a bit. Uh, to describe her is. Uh, Are you gonna cry? I don't think I'm gonna cry, but. Uh, we can make trying to show somebody that we love them really difficult when it's just really simple. And she just tells me she loves me. If I'm doing something wrong, she's going to call me out on it. She doesn't just smile and say, oh, great, Kimber, and then talk yeah. to other people about it and say, wow, I don't think that you should be doing that. People look at the big things, and really it's more about the small things. I think that keep people together. Just little things that just get you and can get couples in such a, a tight moment. The vinegar represented those. But then it came with the honey. And when you taste that honey, after tasting that vinegar, wow, the vinegar taste is gone. You kind of can think back to that and just says, but the honey, our love, will outstand all those bitter moments. This selflessness has taught me to care for others in another capacity that I haven't really experienced yet. I want to live my life more like that. Don't have the spats or anything that you might think of when you're younger. She really makes it the point to like have Christ's love show through her no matter where she is. I don't think I really honed in on that until I became friends with Kimber. And learning things that uh, about myself and about her and just kind of getting a chance to share your life with someone else is pretty awesome. We've been married 53 years. Uh, when we first got married, you think you're in love. I would... <laughs> I would say that after 53 years, I'm more in love with her now than I was then. That's how I feel better. Love? Yes. I do love you. I know. Thank you. You're welcome. I chose that because it just kind of reminds me of the purpose of the church. Jesus, when he was asked, you know, uh, what is the most important command? He said, he boiled it all down to two things, love God, love people. And, and so I, that I loved it because there were some couples, but there were best friends, there were sisters. And, and it just reminds us that love is an action. You've got to do something to prove that you love words. Words don't matter if you don't show it. 
Well, we're, uh, we're back in this series. We had a couple of weeks off. Uh, one was for football Sunday, and then Joe preached last week. But we're back in our series, The Truth About You. And we started this, this whole thing by saying the truth about you and the truth about me is we really don't know what the truth about us is because we're so good at self-deception. And because we're so good at self-deception, we need somebody, one or two people in our lives that are able to tell us the truth about us. They tell us in a way that we don't feel... Um, uh, we don't feel persecuted, but we still feel loved. They know, like what the girl said, um, she said, this is my best friend. I know she's going to call me out if I'm not doing something that reflects, reflects Christ. And so two weeks ago, I talked to you about telling the last 10%. In churches, we've been real good about telling the first 90%, but not telling the, the, the painful truth that will help us be the people that God wants us to be. Well, today, we're going to look at the truth about being ready to obey God. See, when it comes to trying new things, to risking, to really living the way God wants us to, the truth about that is you'll never feel ready to obey God. You'll never feel ready to do God-sized tasks because, very simply, you're not God. He designed it that way. We're supposed to be, you know, like Christ, reflect Christ, we're little Christ, but we are not God's. We are children of God, and he has some very specific things that he wants us to do. Now, uh, when Caleb, our firstborn, he's 20, just turned 20. When he was born, January 27th, we lived in Arlington, Texas. It was a very cold, snowy weekend. He was born on Friday at, at 3-something, 3.23 or something p.m. We were grateful to God for that. We got to stay barely 24 hours, and South Arlington Medical Center sent us home about 6 p.m. on January 28th, 1995. It was cold. It was windy. It was dark, and nobody was at our house but me and Janie, and we were like, what do we do now? Because he didn't come with instructions. You know, we did the whole Lamaze thing, the birthing classes. They teach you all about count and breathing and all that. They don't teach you what to do when that sucker comes out. And so literally, we put him in a bassinet in our room, and, and I slept with my hand on his chest because I was so paranoid he's going to quit breathing. And then I couldn't stand it anymore, so I laid him in the bed in between me and Janie, and I just watched him. His earliest days, I just remember, big old eyes, and he would blink. And I would try to I'd try ESP, go to sleep. It would not work. And even when he was asleep, I couldn't sleep because I was watching to see if his chest was rising and falling because I was so freaked out. I didn't know what to do. Anybody else have a similar experience? Most parents, the first time. Now, the second one, you're like, uh, third one, stick them on the other side of the house. They'll live, you know. But that first one, you are freaked out because it doesn't come with instructions. And, and then they grow up, you know, and they, they become these miniature-looking adults, and then they look adult. And, and then it's time for them to leave, and they realize how scary and expensive the real world is. And they go, I'm not ready for this. And mom and dad are like, oh, we're ready. Ready or not, you're going because this is the time of life when you go. And, and so what we have to realize is we're just not, not ever ready. Life and death and everything in between is filled with uncertainty, right? Because how many of those little babies, when they come out, they're like, I'm so happy I got out of that confinement. No, they were very happy inside the womb. They come out, they start screaming. Caleb, we have a picture of him. I don't know how he did it because he was just, you know, minutes old. My first sight of my baby other than Janie holding him was she put him in, they put him in the little bassinet thing there in the hospital. Somehow sucker rolls over, has his arm and leg over the side and all I see is this clenched tiny and he is screaming. He is not happy that he's out the womb. I haven't been happy since. Um, he'll probably never hear this. Uh, 
no, not really. But, but everything in between, all of the opportunities are very, very daunting. And life has a way of just kind of approaching us and saying, ready or not, here I come. We all face this problem. And, and the truth is, the truth about you, the truth about me is you're never really ready for the most important things, those dramatic moments. You're never going to feel ready for them. And the cool thing about Jesus is the truth about Jesus is he always uses people who say yes, even when they don't feel ready. This is throughout the Bible. We're going to look at several stories today, but it's throughout the Bible. Now, there's this this story right at the end of Jesus' time here on earth. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's appeared for several uh, several different times to several different people in, in 1 Corinthians 15. We find out that at one point, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, appeared to 500 people at the same time. This was not a hallucination. This was not wishful thinking. This was fact. So at the end, when he's about to send them out, he's been crucified, resurrected. He's going to send the disciples out. We're going to read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. And, and by the way, I always put this on you version. If you have your smartphone, you can follow along there. You can take notes there and you can see the the scriptures and context. But if not, those of you who have your listening guides, there's a couple of phrases as we read through this. I'm going to have you mark them because they're they're very important to what we're going to talk about today. All right. Beginning in verse 16, the 11 disciples, we don't even get far. How many disciples? 11. Underline or circle that word 11 because we're going to come back to it in a minute. The 11 disciples left for Galilee going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So Jesus says, I want you to meet me on this mountain. When they saw him, they worshiped him. And now I bolded this and I underlined it, but I want you to circle it as well. I want you to read this phrase with me. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Read this. But some of them, all right, let's try it again. But some of them doubted. One more time. But some of them doubted. All right, so 11 and some of them doubted. Those are two big things we're going to come back to. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this is called the Great Commission. If you go through our 101 class, we talk about the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, two things that we base our philosophy of church on. The Great Commission is, is called great because it's bigger than just for those disciples. It's for everybody who ever follows Jesus. It's for us. If you're a Christ follower, this this is his word to you. This is your assignment on the planet. And he keeps using this word all. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing all of them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the things that I taught you, and I will be with you always. Now, this is a big commission, but it was given to people who weren't ready, and, and I'm going to show you how we know that. First little indicator we have is that word 11. How many? 11. That word would jump out at people back in in the first century reading this text. Some of you know that that at that time, people were fascinated by numbers, and they would connect numbers with different things. So, for instance, the number three was associated with the holiness of God. If you remember when Isaiah saw, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. There's a seraphim, and and the seraphim is... Seraphim is crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, three times. So this idea of three is is, um, tied in with the holiness of God. When they finally got the temple in the Old Testament, one third, the holiest place, the most holy, the holy of holies, one third of the temple was for the holy of holies. Two thirds of the temple was the holy place, and then you had the outer uh, places. But but this idea of three was was considered uh, associated with the holiness of God, the perfection of God. Now the number four was associated with the earth, with physical creation. 
Four directions, north, south, east, and west. There were four dimensions, uh, height, width, length, and breadth. Now, you got to understand, the people were fascinated by numbers. So if you took three, which was associated with the holiness of God, and the number four, which was associated with creation, humans, God and humans, and you multiplied them, what do you get? Three times four. This isn't new math. We're, we're, we're going, okay. You get 12. Thank you. Three times four is 12. And this idea was, this was complete. It was the, it was the combination of holiness and, and people, of heaven, of earth, God and people. And it was a revered number. So if, you, if you've studied scripture at all, there were 12 loaves of bread in the temple. There were 12 gems in the priest's vestment. And then there's one big 12, probably you know this. There were 12 tribes of Israel. Now, 12 was a number of holiness. The lunar candle, candle, calendar. I suppose there's a lunar candle. The lunar calendar had 12 months. It was, it was representative of something that had come to a complete cycle. For Israel, though, the 12 tribes of Israel, what it meant was the whole family. It meant everybody was there. But see, by the time Jesus was on the scene, something was jacked up with the 12 tribes. Back in around 722 BC, the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom. Because of disobedience, the kingdom of God had been split. The northern kingdom had so many tribes. The southern kingdom had so many tribes. Well, Assyria comes and wipes out. I mean, there is nothing left of the northern kingdom. So by the, uh, right after that, there's only two and a half tribes left. There's the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Judah, and half the tribe of Levi is all that's left. So there are two and a half tribes, not 12. Two and a half was not a number that meant a lot to people. 12 was a number that meant a lot to people. So by the time Jesus is on, on the earth, the Jews longed for the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. They grieved for it. They pray for it. When is God? Because God said he was going to restore his kingdom. And they were looking forward to that time when God was going to do something new. Now, Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. God is restoring everything. He's making things right. And Jesus goes out and selects some disciples. Now, this is unusual because in Jesus' day, most um, rabbis would not go and select disciples. This was kind of considered beneath them. Jesus was the only rabbi that we know of who went out and recruited 12 disciples. I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you. Um, they would take applications and the, the rabbi would then choose the most qualified. Jesus was very different in this respect. Does anybody remember how many disciples Jesus chose? 12. This is not a coincidence. No other rabbi that we've ever studied had 12 disciples. All other rabbis had disciples. Nobody had 12 and this was a big deal. Nobody would have dared to have 12 because it was too presumptuous. When Jesus chose 12 disciples, he was making a claim, and it's one of the most in-your-face claims. It was a very dangerous claim, and it's part of what got him killed. He was saying to everybody, Israel, anybody who would pay attention, what God began long ago with the 12 tribes of Israel, he says, I'm starting new and fresh with these 12 guys. These 12 guys and me are the new beginning of God's kingdom, God's redeemed community on earth. God's dream is beginning again with these 12 and with Jesus. And that's why you see 12 all through the New Testament. By the time you get to the book of Revelation, this is kind of a fascinating study if you ever do it. You see all of this stuff. You see all of the the incredible judgments that are going to come. And you see Jesus coming on the white horse. At the end of the book of Revelation, which is at the end of our Bible, it says that there's a new heaven and a new earth. 
And it's only prepared for those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And it says a new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven. The new Jerusalem has 12 gates for the 12 tribes of Israel. The gates are made of pearls. If you've ever heard of the pearly gates, it comes from the book of Revelation because a pearl is for each gate of the 12 tribes. It says that there are 12 foundation stones and scripture says that the names of the 12 disciples are written on the foundation stones. The 12 gates are guarded by 12 angels. This is a place that is magnificent. It will be perfectly secure. Nobody's gonna get past the angels unless God says they can. It's a place of inclusiveness for everybody who is a king, uh, is a child of God. There will be a tree of life. In, in Revelation chapter 22, it says there's a tree planted. It's the tree of life. And, the, and a river, clear as crystal, comes out of it. And it says that this tree produces 12 different crops of fruit, one each month. And, and this is actually my word for the, the year. Those of you who've been around a while know that, that last year we talked about this, prayed about God giving us a word for the year. Well, my word comes from Revelation 22 too. And it says that the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And as I was praying about this, God just kept bringing this back, healing. My word for the whole year is healing. Healing psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, physically. I believe God's going to do some stuff this year through New Life Community Church, through the people in the church. He's going to bring healing and we're going to have testimony after testimony of God doing healing. My my word for the year comes from Revelation 22, uh, 2. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And now, then, then you keep reading and you find out there's going to be 144,000 there. Now, that's a symbolic number. It stands for 12 times 12,000. What it means is every tribe will be filled. Nobody who has been chosen by God to be in his kingdom will be left out. It's not a literal 144,000. Otherwise, some of us would be in trouble, right? If you look, uh, the New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles tall. A lot more than 144,000 can fit in that configuration. So anyway, it just means that, that God is, is going to restore everything. Every tribe will be filled. And this number 12, they just they loved it. They couldn't, they couldn't wait for 12. That's why the disciples loved being the twelve. Now, individually, you know, they, they weren't much. They're saying, we're it, we're the 12. They weren't much because you got Peter, the denier. You got, you got Judas, um, the, the betrayer, Thomas, the doubter. Individually, they're kind of like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But together, they're the 12. And that's why they argued over who's the greatest. We're the 12, but who's number one in the 12? It's all starting with us. The kingdom of God is starting with us. Now, we get to the end of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. Crucifixion, resurrection. Jesus is going to send them out, and Matthew says there are only how many? 11. They're not whole anymore. They're not perfect anymore. It's the wrong number. If they're waiting for 12 and there's only 11, there's not enough. It's not just that they're the wrong number. Matthew goes on to say that they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. And the next phrase, we read it aloud together a while ago, but some of them doubted. Matthew didn't hide that. That's kind of crazy to me because if you were trying to make Jesus look like this great guy and, you know, you would try to make every, the Bible tells you about real people who struggled in their faith. Many of them sinned. The Bible tells you real stories of real people who met a real God who changed them, right? So the Bible doesn't hold back. So they don't have enough disciples. There's a quantity problem, but then you find out The ones they have don't even believe enough. So there's a quality problem in their belief system. They worship and they doubt. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus says, go to meet me in Galilee. 
So he's been appearing to people for 40 days. You see the resurrected Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the redeemer of the universe. Some worship, some doubt it. I think some of them are going, man, there he is. I know that's Jesus. I saw him dead. The tomb's empty. I know that's Jesus. I've seen the holes in his wrist. I've seen the the spear hole in his side. I've seen the holes in his feet. That's Jesus. But man, this is crazy. I'm not even sure what I believe. They worshiped and they doubted. And see, that's, that's kind of how we are. Now, one New Testament scholar said this. He said, the number 11 limps. It's not perfect like 12. The church that Jesus sends into the world is 11-ish, imperfect, fallible. Think about that. The, the church that Jesus sends out is not perfect. He's perfect, but he's not. But we're not. And so he's, he doesn't say, first, let's get enough numbers. He doesn't say, first, let's get enough faith. He says, Go. While you're going, we'll work on the numbers. While you're going, we'll work on the faith part while you do the obedience part. He says, go. You'll learn as you go. Now, this is a theme throughout the Bible. In the Bible, when God calls someone to do something, as far as I know, no one ever said, yes, it's about time God called me to do something bigger than myself. Nobody says that. Usually the response that I've seen is, you want me to do what? All right. Or who me? Let's, Let's just go with the who me. Let me give you some examples. God says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. If you've watched Charlton Heston, let my people go. And the first thing, you remember what, what Moses said? He wasn't like, yes. He's like, who, me? You, you want me to do, I just came over here because the bush was burning, wasn't consumed. I just want to see the burning bush. You want me to do what? And then he says, Lord, I, I don't speak so well. Send my brother Aaron. It's a true story. Who, me? No, he didn't say, I'm, I'm going. He says, who, me? God comes to Gideon. I love this. In, in a seminary, I studied Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Judges is, is that second book, and, and it's all about when the people of God disobeyed God, and he allowed somebody to come and conquer them. When they would cry out to God, he would raise up a judge. So Gideon is one of those judges. Gideon is hiding in a wine press threshing wheat. Why? Because the, the enemy was coming and stealing all their wheat. They would thresh the wheat. The enemy would come get it. So he's hiding in a wine press. He thinks, oh, I know. I'll fool them. They'll, they don't think we're doing any wine, so I'll hide in here and I'll do the wheat. An angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon and he says, mighty warrior. No joke, Gideon goes, who, me? And he argues with the angel. He goes, I don't know if you know this, but I'm from the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh's not like one of the big tribes. And he said, my clan is one of the smaller clans in the tribe of Manasseh. And he said, my family is a very small family. And he says, I'm the weakest one in my family. You want me to do what? And the angel Lord says, you're going to deliver my people. So God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, I want to start a new family with you. And Abraham goes, me? You're telling me that a son is going to be born to someone a hundred years old? Angel of the Lord, which is really, we think that's a pre-incarnate Christ, but angel of the Lord, there's no pharmaceutical help involved at this time. That comes many centuries later. Some of you will get that later. When one of those commercials comes on that are inappropriate for your kids to see, you're going to go, that's what he was talking about. He says, I don't think so. And God says, yes, it's going to happen. God comes to Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, who me? I'm a child. This is really cool. Jeremiah says, oh, sovereign Lord. 
I'm but a child. It's this worship and doubt because sovereign Lord means you can do anything, God. And then he goes, but I'm a kid, so I don't think so. Mixture of worship and doubt. Esther. Oh, I love the story of Esther. Esther is called, she's just a a Jewish girl. She becomes queen of the Assyrian empire. And so when, when uh, the evil Haman is going to wipe out all the Jews, Mordecai, her uncle, sends her word and says, hey, you got to go before the king. And, and Esther goes, I'm just the queen. Because there was a rule. If you appeared before the king and the king didn't call you, you could be killed. And she says, do you know what they do to people who go in there unsummoned? They can kill them. And, and I love Mordecai. Mordecai is one of my favorites. He's like, so? You were born for this day. He says, what if, what if God put you in this position for such a time as this? And so she's like, okay. And so they fast and pray. And then she goes before the king and the king didn't kill her. But, but when she was, she's like, who me, you want me to do what? No. Jesus calls a wealthy young ruler. He says, what must I have? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, you got to go sell all your possessions, give it to the poor. Not because he was rich rich, wealthy. Not, that's not why he said to do it. It's because wealth was his God. And we're told that the young man says, no, he walks away because he was very rich. Who me? You want me to give all this so I can have treasure in heaven? Not going to do it. Ruth is just the opposite. Ruth is poor. There's a famine going on. Ruth is a foreigner. Ruth is in the lineage of Jesus all because she went out and she was like a slave girl. In fact, she picked up food after the slaves had gone through. That's how low she was. And because she was faithful to her mother-in-law, God raises up a a kinsman redeemer. Oh my gosh, this is such a a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because Ruth was obedient. She said yes, even though she didn't feel like she was qualified. Another story is when God told Saul, the very first king of Israel, he said, you're going to be king of Israel. Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And Saul says, I can't do it. I'm, I'm the weakest. I, I can't do it. The day they're going to have the coronation, wouldn't you think if you have the, the whole Israelite nation, they've come out of Egypt, they have all this great history, the very first king, it's going to be a party. Samuel gets up and he's ready to anoint Saul. They can't find him. He's known for weeks, this is the day you're going to be anointed king. They can't find him. Finally, they pray and they ask God and God, they said, God, is he even around? And God said, yes, he's in the baggage. He's hiding in the baggage. Can you see this massive, strong man hiding in the baggage? What are you doing? I don't want to be king. (laughs) I can't do it. So just those examples I've given you, too inarticulate, too weak, too old, too young, too sinful, too dangerous, too rich, too poor, too much baggage. As far as I know, no one ever jumps up and says, let's go. Because what God calls you to do is so much bigger than you. It is so much harder than your dream for your life. But it is so much more fulfilling. When God called us to start this church, I was like, surely there's someone else. God worked on me for months. And finally, there were no other options. I was sweeping floors at another church that was being built. And y'all heard, some of y'all heard this before. Me and three guys that didn't speak English. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. It's the white guy. I went home and, and I broke down and I, and, and I cried in, in Janie's lap. Our kids were little. And I said, uh, 
I said, I have a master's degree. I'm sweeping floors. So we went out to Lower Lake and we got open our little prayer journal. And all of these things over here on this side of the page where I was going to go to this other church fell through and is no. I mean, there were 10 things that God would have to do. No, 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 no. And, and I'm not kidding you. It, because that was all no, we looked across at the page months before, probably a year before, I, I had written down at the top of the page, the very last page of my prayer journal, does God want me to start a church? Question mark. And in my mind, no. And I wrote down 10 things that God would have to do on this side of the page. And Janie, Janie says, my wise wife says, why don't we look at that side of the page? Sitting at lower like, open it up and, and it's yes, 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 yes. We get down to seven, eight yeses. And I go, man, am I stupid. She, she, that was the perfect time. She could have gone, yeah, you are. She didn't. She said, I don't want to look back 20 years from now and wonder what would have happened if we'd gone for it. Closed the book and I said, we're going for it. Four days later, us and 22 people met in what used to be Tammy's 57 Heaven. Before that, it was Cook's Automotive. Now it's Verizon. We had no idea, but we were saying, who me? Who me? Here's the thing, and this is where you come in. God loves using people who aren't ready. He loves it. Now, we're going to go through these next ones very quickly, so, so get your writing hand in, in, ready to go. The issue of feeling ready is not the primary indicator of being ready. Your feelings have nothing to do with whether you're ready or not. And if you don't go and do something for the kingdom of God, you'll never know what God could have done through you. If you don't go, you'll never know. God still does this all the time. He says, would you just take a risk? Would you just do something? Love somebody, connect with somebody, share what you have. Would you serve? Would you volunteer? Would you take a risk? Would you try something? Now, the truth about us is we will always have a reason to say not ready because in our minds, being ready means I am so sure of the outcome that God is not even required. And God says, I'm not in that. Because I'm not required. If you want to do something in your power, God says, go ahead. Do it until you're so down on doing things your way that you come over and you say, God, whatever it is, that's where we were, Lower Lake. Sweep floors. And the only reason I got $9 an hour is because the, the head honcho liked me. I was supposed to get $7 an hour. It was barely enough to, to buy groceries for my family at that time. And, and it sucked. We said, okay, God, we don't know what the, what the future holds, but we'll trust you. The truth about you is if you wait until you feel ready, you'll die before God will ever use you. Jesus says, go, not because you're ready. He says, go, because all authority has been given to me. Therefore, I'm sending you out and I will be with you. That's the reason you go. Jesus takes his friends to the mountain. There's not enough of them. The ones who are there don't have enough faith. It doesn't matter. The reason they're, go, they're to go is not because they feel ready. It's because Jesus is ready. You have to risk. You have to try. You got to do something. The reason you do it is not that you feel ready. The reason you go is because you won't be alone. See, our church is 11-ish. We'll always be 11-ish. Jesus says, don't worry about 11. You're forgetting the 12th man, me. Now, the Aggies think that they came up with the 12th man. Sorry, Jesus did it. And then they had this whole fight with Seattle because they were talking about the 12th man. And, and no, Jesus was the original 12th man. 
When you go, when you trust, when you try, you don't go alone. You are never alone. He says, I will be with you. Literally, it means all the days from now until the end of your life, but it's the, the commission is bigger than your life. Jesus says, I will be with every follower of Christ all the days until the end of time. Not just most days, not just good days, not just days when you've had your devotions and you've prayed enough and you feel spiritual or you remember that God is bigger than everything else. All the days. You may have a bad hair day. You may have a bad mood day, a bad news day, a bad day at the office. You never have a bad day with Jesus. You may wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You never wake up on the wrong side of Jesus. Jesus calls people just to obey. Do something. Here's what's interesting about us. We don't say, not ever. This is what most of us do. The truth about us is most of us say, not yet. So today I want to know what's one area where you've been saying not yet to God. Could be small, might be something big. Jesus always gathers his friends and says, I know you don't have enough faith. I know there's not enough of you, but I want you to go. I want you to do something. Worshiping and doubting. He says, I know, I get it. What is one area where you've been saying not yet to God? Some of you have heard this. Some of you say, I believe God's calling me to Haiti, but not yet. If you wait until you're ready, you're probably going to be dead. Right? It's never convenient to go to Haiti. It's never easy to go to, it's not inexpensive to go to Haiti. First year we were going to go, I get a phone call. I'm at my, my niece's wedding in Austin, and then we were going to drive from Austin to Dallas, and we're going to spend the night and get up and go. Caleb and I were going that first year. I get phone calls, and people are telling me that they're not going to go. And, and they said, you're going? I said, dude, number one, God called me to go, so I'm going. Number two, God called my son to go, my 14-year-old son. So my 14-year-old son's going, well, what, aren't you worried about this? God called me to go, so the, the, the details of my trip are on God. We show up at the airport, everybody goes. We had a marvelous time. Now, we had some crazy stuff. Our group is, is kind of notorious in praying Pelican missions because of the crazy stuff that happened to us. We were in a flood, and I mean, just crazy stuff has happened to our group. But we've always come back with everybody. That's why we get to keep going, because everybody survives. Some of you have been saying, I'm, I'm going to go to CR someday, but not yet. Some of you are saying that I'm going to get in that men's group on Sunday mornings, not yet. Some of you are saying, I need to, I need to go to that women's group. This, this study they're doing on Crave, I, I need to go that, but not yet. Here's the truth. And, and see, I heard about a young man who said, said these words, and this is not the first time I've heard this. He said, I'm just starting my career so I'm not going to give anything yet. I'm going to get wealthy, and then when I'm wealthy, I'm going to give out of my wealth. Now, we've been looking at this whole self-deception thing, and here's what he was doing. He was giving himself credit for being generous while he was really hoarding his money because he's selfish. He wants to be rich and successful. But here's what we do. We, we judge ourselves on our best intentions. We judge everybody else on what they do. Right, so if I, if I say I'm generous, then, then I'm going to be generous someday, whether I ever do anything about it. But if you say you're generous and you don't give, well, you're stingy. You're just consumed by the things of the world. But not me, because someday I'm going to be generous. Some of you need to serve. <laughs> Some of you are like, well, someday I'm going to serve. God says, give something. If you can't give 10%, give something. Just show him you can trust. He can trust you. And, and by the way, there's this principle God says, if you can't be trusted with a little, you can't be trusted with a lot. So I don't care how poor you are. We, we've given. And, and some, of the, some of the most precious tithes to me 
are the $15 ones. Because I know how much the people make. I remember being in college. At first I made $100 a month. That's $10 I would tie to the church and live on 90 I got a raise to 125 Man, I thought I was happening. I could afford to take girls to the dollar movie on campus. Didn't have, luckily, it was a, it was a pedestrian campus because I didn't have enough money to put gas in the car, but that's another thing. Some people say, you know, well, maybe I should serve. Well, not yet. Maybe you're saying not yet around this one. Some people don't want to tell others about Christ. This happens all the time, and, and I'm not judging you if this is you. But some people on the back of their card, please pray for this person. Please, please pray for this person. Pray that God will send somebody into their life to tell them about Jesus. You know what I pray? God, help them realize you sent them to tell them about Jesus. Oh, well, I don't feel adequate. I don't have all the answers. You don't have to. Because a lot of times I don't get a chance to talk to anybody about Jesus until after you've done it. And then after you've done it and there's some questions, we can all get together and they might trust me because they trust you. You see, a lot of times they're not going to listen to a preacher. It's my job. Of course he's going to say those things, right? Jesus gathered 11, the wrong number, wrong faith. And he said, I want to help you to help other people know me, to become disciples. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what he's saying is, I want you, you, Every one of you who's a follower of Christ, I want you to go into all nations and make disciples. Baptizing, that's what this tank over here is for. And what, what baptism is, it's when somebody stands up in front of a crowd, puts a stake in the ground and says, I'm in the kingdom of God and I'm not ashamed to show everybody about it. We're going to have baptism next week. Um, some of you know uh, Ramona Light. She's going to be rebaptized. She said, it's time. Ramona started the, the group out in Tennessee Colony when we did um, the freeway series. People, God's rocked her world, rocked the people in Tennessee Colony, all because she came up to me after church one Sunday and she said, hey, can I do this at my house? I said, yeah, how many books you need? And people are coming to Christ and they're, they're learning who they are in Christ because Ramona is out in Tennessee Colony every Sunday night that we have small groups, gathering a group of people, opening up the scripture and being real together because she said, okay, I'll do it. I don't feel adequate, but I'll do it. And see, a lot of folks are saying, well, I, I need to be connected. You want to be connected? Get your butt up off that chair and get to a group. Don't get mad at the church. I get, I get, I get mean things said to me all the time because somebody gets sick or something happens or they, they get an ingrown toenail and I don't come anoint with oil and pray in the name of the Lord and the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. They get mad at me and I never even know until after the toenail's been removed. And honestly, I, I don't really worry too much about that. You're going to get mad at me over that? There's a lot of other stuff you need to deal with. The people I know about, the people that I'm closest to in this church, meet every Sunday night back here in the first room, the youth room. And we sit around, we talk, and, and we laugh, and we pray together. And then sometimes I meet with them outside of that time. I know what's going on in their lives. I know, I know when people are in trouble. It's because they've chosen to connect. So right now, bow your heads.
I want you to answer this question in your mind. What is it that you've been saying not yet to God that God says it's about time that you say today's the day? What is it? Because I'm going to ask you to write that on your, your registration card in just a second. There's something that God's been talking to you about. Serving getting in small groups, getting connected to a, one of our Bible studies, serving in single mom's ministry and our food box ministry, hearts in motion. There's places to serve. And some of you have been sitting there for years. And I'm praying, God, maybe today they'll finally be obedient to you. This is your first Sunday, you get a pass. This is your 500th Sunday, no pass. Father, help us realize today that you're saying to everyone who calls you Lord, you're saying go, do something. Change our hearts and our minds in Jesus' name, amen.